the beginning of this year, we began to introduce a study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this is our fifth week through that study. So if you haven't been here, um, I'll tell you what you missed in 1 Thessalonians. We haven't even got to verse 1 of chapter 1. So far we have been looking at the background that led to this letter and everything that Paul and the missionaries experienced as they traveled first through Asia and then through Europe, as they crossed through Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and now we arrive in Athens. Some of you anticipated that once we got to Thessalonica, we would finally begin this study that we have been referencing. But it wasn't while Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke were in Thessalonica that he wrote this letter. It was actually afterwards. And so we are on this last leg of the missionary journey that we will be following, and we arrive in Athens. So far, we've seen what is a theme. As Paul and the missionaries preached Christ crucified and reasoned in the synagogue, there was an antagonizing force. The Jews were provoked, and they instigated riots, even by stirring up uh, the rabble that would have been in the marketplace. The, um, I like the word that is used in Aladdin, the riffraff. They stirred up the riffraff to cause this persecution and ran Paul out of Philippi. They ran him out of Thessalonica. They heard that he was in Berea, and so they left Thessalonica to go to Berea to run him from there as well. In Athens, it wasn't the Jews that were provoked, though. It was Paul. As we look at the study, the central theme that I, I really pulled away from this, and I struggled to find the central theme of the text this week. You know, it's very easy to look at a portion of the Bible and to outline it and to say, oh, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then that happened. And I kept looking at it, and I said, but how does it all connect? And I was asking the wrong question. I was looking at it, and I was saying, well, what did Paul do? I mean, that's been a very useful question as we've looked at Acts so far. What did Paul do? Is that the question we should be asking, though? The story of Acts isn't about Paul any more than the story of Esther is about Esther. Any more than the story of Nehemiah is about Nehemiah. The story of Acts is how the gospel was preached. The question to consider is not what did Paul do, but what did God do? And as we look at our section that we come to today in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21, that's the question I want to come back to. What was God doing? The focus of an effective ministry is always on the work of God. It's not the work of man. It's not the labor of the church. It's not how people are working together. It's really not so much an administration question as it is an obedience question. Are we sensitive to the Spirit in the way that we seek Him? Remember earlier this... Well, not this year. I can't say that anymore. It's still January and I'm getting used to it. Early in 2023, we had our revival service, and as a part of those revival services, we met and we looked at some devotionals that highlighted enemies and sources of spiritual revival. One of those enemies that we discussed was elevating our service and ministry above Christ. It is easier to define ourselves by what we accomplish than by our new identity in Christ. 
For some people, the Christian life consists more of fellowship, service to those in need, witnessing and worship than becoming intimate with Jesus. This leads to a problem where ministry takes place without the presence of God in it. The evangelical axiom that God saves people and that people don't save people remains true. But is that something that we believe as a self-evident truth? Is that something that is revealed in the way that we work together? Are we committed to doing things that we have always done rather than obeying where God is leading us? Are we committed to not doing things that we've never done because it would push us beyond our comfort zones rather than obeying where God is leading us? Are we so committed to the acts of service that we allow ourselves to stay in our comfort zones rather than being pushed? What would happen if we were so committed to Christ that we stopped doing these things that He directed us to stop doing? What would happen if we were so committed to Christ that we were so dynamic and fluid that there wasn't time for us to ever look back and to say, that was the way we always did it? What would happen if we were so committed to Christ that our comfort zones weren't an idol? I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to our text. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Before we read, let's pray together that God would give us the insight that we need to understand His story. Father in heaven, thank You for this morning. Thank You for bringing us together, Lord. Father, I know that as we get ready and make our way to church and go throughout our week that there have been things and circumstances that have come up that have distracted us from You. Thank you for bringing us here now. And help us, Lord, to set aside those distractions for a short time, that our sole focus would be on you and your word and what it means and how we might apply it to our life. Help us not to try and to accomplish this sort of application without your aid, but help us to be dependent upon your spirit. In the words of the psalmist, Lord, Open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the wonderful truth found in your law. Help us to love your word and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible says that now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
Now, when we're looking at this map of the missionary journey, one of, and this is helpful, and the reason I put this on the screen for you all is because if you're like me, you have no real sense of direction. I would much rather spend my time in books than I would looking at maps. And, and so it's very helpful for me to put a visual alongside this. But we followed Paul's journey as he traveled north throughout this Asia region of modern-day Turkey, and he crossed over into what is modern-day Europe near Greece. And he's now made his way, he's being pushed out of the main trade route, that Ignatius Way that runs across Thessalonica and Philippi and eventually into what is today called Istanbul. I almost said Constantinople, Istanbul. And um, he makes his way to Athens. And we noted last week, and as we were studying this, that Timothy and Silas were left behind. They stayed in Berea while Paul was escorted south. And as they arrived in Athens, we, we kind of get the sense we don't know what it is, but we pick up from the text that Paul realized that Athens was a great city to win for Christ. And whatever it was, because of its size. Perhaps it was because of the type of people that were there. There was a type of reception, or we don't really get an explanation here, but Paul asks that Timothy and Silas would, be, would return to him. When we look at Athens and the time that Paul would have been there, it wasn't really in its heyday. Now we think of Athens and the, the beautiful city with archaeological uh, marvels and things that we would love to go and see and take pictures of, and we would stand there and, and be amazed at what the Greeks were able to build. In its heyday, Athens was a, a capital not only of culture, but of education and learning. When Paul arrived, it was still a center of culture and education, even though it didn't have the prominence in the Roman Empire that it had once had. When Paul arrived, our text says, his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was provoked within him. God's work in Athens begins, I believe, with this provocation. It starts with Paul's spirit being provoked. Now I wonder if you wouldn't mind just contrasting the kind of response that we typically have when we visit a city like Athens. We immediately get our phones out and we take all of these pictures and we look at all of these things. Paul had the same reaction. But he had drawn so close to God. He was raised so near to God that rather than marveling at what had been built, he saw idolatry everywhere he looked. He saw sin. And I think we're tempted to say, well, the Athenians, you know, they weren't Christians. They weren't Jews. They didn't have this background. They were just living according to their culture. Shouldn't we be compassionate to this need? Let me ask you a question. Is Christ worthy to be worshipped by the nations? I think he's worthy all over. I think contrasting the response of Paul with the response that I would have if I had landed in Athens and saw these things is a stark contrast. But I ask about this work that God is doing because it starts with a provocation. It starts with his spirit being stirred. It starts with his spirit being burdened with the things that he had seen. 
The, the word prov- provoked or the, the stirred up, or uh, depending on your translation, it literally means to make something sharp. And so it's actually an image, if you can imagine getting a, a thorn stuck in your shoe as you walk on it. And you're wearing boots, so you don't want to unlace them just yet. And so you walk with that thorn a little ways, and it rubs on your heels. It is provoking to action. We get the sense that Paul had asked Silas and Timothy to return to him so that they could begin the work that they were doing now in Athens, but Paul could not wait for their arrival. He needed to get to work because his spirit was provoked before they could arrive. Are we provoked for God? Let me tell you a a personal experience. I can't tell you the date that this happened, but it's very clear in my mind. At the time, I was reading through Knowing God by J.I. Packer, which is a wonderful book. Packer does a phenomenal job of putting into words the majesty and the glory of God. Something that I've always considered somewhat ineffable, impossible to describe with words. Something that I have struggled to completely convey, either in writing or speech or Even with dance moves, I just don't know how to express the glory of God. As I was reading J.I. Packer's book, I saw the way that he was doing this, and it was so accurate, it was so marvelous. Afterwards, I was doing my Bible study, and I remember what I was going through. Not only was I reading Knowing God, but I was going through the book of Job, and I had come to the end where God begins to address Job directly. Job 38, verse 4, God says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know who stretched a measure line across it. On what were its footings set or what laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those garments. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. I sat in that verse for a long time, just amazed by how big God is. And right after that, I got up and I started working on the things that I do daily, which means I got distracted and was looking at Facebook. And I saw this picture, an artist's rendition of Jesus Christ. And the strangest thing happened. I felt sick. My stomach churned. Not because the artist had done a bad job. 
They had done a beautiful portrait of our Lord and Savior, but it had fallen so short of the glory of God that I had experienced in that moment that I could not bear to look at it. This doesn't happen to me all the time. But after spending so much time with God, I felt my spirit provoked by this image. I was shaken and I was overwhelmed. A few weeks ago, I I mentioned the difference between Paul and the missionaries' approach to proclaiming the gospel and that of the Jews that were made jealous by his preaching. We looked at how Paul, rather than stirring people up or agitating crowds or giving them a cause and working them up in a particular direction, reasoned with them, explained to them, and had them understand these things through calm and I would even add ethical measures. Whereas the Jews stirred up the riffraff that had nothing better to do, gave them a cause and gave them something to work towards, and were incendiary in their behavior. The conclusion of that was that we should not be proclaiming Jesus in a provoking way. We should be preaching Jesus in a reasonable way. Does that mean that we should not be provoked? There's a balance in this and all things. We should be provoked by the world that we see. These two things are not in opposition with each other. Rather, I think they are in great harmony. When we are allowing people to hear Jesus through reasonable means, their spirit may be provoked, but that is not the work of the preacher. That is not the work of the faithful churchmen proclaiming God's good news. That is the work of the spirit that pricks their heart and begins to draw them closer to him. The problem is that many of us see the things that should provoke us and we are numb to them. Loved ones, we should be observers of our culture, but we should not be consumers of it. For some, our reaction or our numbness comes from the fact that when we see this immorality or this culture war that is beginning to take shape, we see all the sides and, and everything that comes along with us. I love the term culture wars. Does, it, doesn't that just paint a picture of what takes place as people argue about their different opinions and other things that don't actually matter? And it's on both sides. Whether it's the the keyboard warrior that is defending the respectful use of pronouns or it is the get them libs keyboard warrior that is demonstrating how every form of wokeness is going to make the entire country look like Seattle. No matter what we look at, these people are just instigating problems. Neither of these approaches, I believe, is the Christian response. I love that we quote John 3.16 so much. Don't we all know John 3.16 at this point? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do we quote John 3.17 with as much fervor? For God did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. When we talk about culture wars and the kinds of oppositions that Christians are experiencing, our place is not to condemn the world. After all, we are a part of God's mission, right? 
If we're a part of God's mission, the next thing that that tells us is that we are to be cooperating in His work, working alongside Him, doing what He's instructing us to do. It's not to be combative. It's not to condemn the world. That wasn't why God came to the world at all. The world was actually condemned before Jesus Christ was already born because of a sinful nature. His work in coming and giving us the gospel and fulfilling prophecy was that we might be saved from the condemnation that we already had. This kind of a balanced approach underlines what it means to be provoked and to take action. Our provocation is not that we would be rambling or that we would be loud or that we would be boisterous or that we would be focused on being a vocal minority. It would simply be that our focus would be on saving people through reasonable means to the one true gospel that is capable of saving them. Engaging in a quasi-culture war is unproductive. The jury's out. Social media has been around long enough that when we look at history and we look at how it has had an effect on people, I have yet to find anyone who has been convinced of changing their opinion because of a comment or a tweet or a thread. It doesn't work. It's unproductive. Do you know why? Because when people are more focused on being right, even Christians, they preach themselves. They do not preach Christ. When we participate in these sorts of worldly escapades, we become consumers of the culture just as if we had participated in the sin that we see ourselves. Our goal is not to condemn the world, but it is to save the world. When we set ourselves aside, when we're able to look at the promise that is found in John 3, 17, God sent His Son in order to save the world. Why are you here? Why have we been left here? Because our God is doing a work that only He can do, and He is using us to do it to save the world. To be an observer of the world and not a participant in it simply means that when we see the world, we, have, we are provoked to compassion for them. We are provoked to be a faithful uh, proprietor, a faithful steward of the gospel that has been given to us. Many people look at Paul's journey into Athens and They look at how he began to preach and they make comments about how Paul had changed his uh, approach in order to appeal to the intellectuals that were there in Athens. And certainly that's true. We'll see more of that next week. He definitely has a method that approaches these intellectuals in a way that they can understand. I would even say that the gospel, so long as our message does not change, is preserved no matter what our methods are. But I am concerned at the number of commentaries that I read in the latter part of this week that made note that Paul appealed to these intellectual minds simply to have his way with them. Paul preached the same gospel in Athens that he had preached in Thessalonica. He preached boldly the same gospel that had him arrested in Philippi. He preached boldly the same gospel that he had been preaching since he was converted. I think this comment that makes note at the different, differing methods really misses the point. His message 
never changed. There have been so many attempts over the years to develop different systems and programs in order to bring about church health, to bring about more faithful discipleship. And all of these things, I think, are very beneficial. I think they're very good. I, I, I look back at some of the things that have been produced within our own work and, and how useful and helpful they have been. The WMA has produced our, our Sunbeams literature, and we're still using that, and it's good curriculum. It's good at discipling young children. The Galileans were intentional about making young, men, uh, young boys into men through their literature and their programs. The WMA, I think, has done a valiant job at trying to get the GMA up and going so that they can disciple young women, particularly in the area of drawing them in to what it means to be an associational Baptist. And... Our own Dr. Steve Crawley and Dr. Philip Atterbury and uh, Dr. Ronnie Johnson, I think was the third author of it, produced Disciple Way, which by far is the best discipleship curriculum that I've ever had the pleasure of laying my hands on. But let me say something about all of these things. A program is not going to take the place of what God can do. The only way these things work is if they are intentionally focused on taking people from wherever they are in their spiritual walk with God and maturing them into believers that are provoked by God when they see the world around them, that are compassionate towards the needs of the world, and have the tools that they need in order to engage with such people. People that know the power of prayer. People who are confident in the promises of God and do not waver in their message in the face of opposition, but preach boldly the message that God has given us in His Word without making apologies for it, without making excuses for it, without dismissing the parts of it that are difficult to grapple with. Discipleship that touches the heart I believe is so desperately neglected, not because we are missing resources, but because it is incredibly messy. The kind of discipleship that we should be after is the kind of discipleship that changes the person from the inside out. When Paul was in Athens, he reasoned, this is again that word dialogamai, the word for dialogue in the synagogue, and then when the synagogue wasn't open or when people weren't gathered there, when there weren't people for him to engage with, he went out into the city square and he preached Christ. He proclaimed it to anyone who could hear him. He wasn't afraid of the kind of mess he would get, up, get wound up in if he preached the gospel to someone that didn't match his socioeconomic status. He wasn't afraid of getting intertwined with the kind of person that has a background of uh, the taboo subjects that we like to avoid. He was willing to preach Christ to anyone that came to him. Real discipleship that draws so close to the person's heart consequently results in the kind of messes that come with living around those kinds of people. And it's a joy. Really, it's something that we should celebrate when we get to spend time with people who are different than us. In fact, I think young Christians are my favorite Christians to spend time with because they ask questions that old Christians are afraid to ask. 
They challenge me. They help me to grow. So often, even with all the right resources and all the right programs and all the right people, discipleship fails in the local church. Let me tell you a story of failed discipleship in the local church. A young girl was saved under the ministry of a faithful preacher. His wife was intentional in inviting that young girl to her house, and they did all sorts of things together. They studied the Bible. They discussed struggles that she was experiencing in high school. They discussed uh, how to cook. This girl had a difficult situation, something that most Christians don't have to deal with whenever they go home. Her family wasn't saved. Her parents openly mocked Christianity, the belief that somebody could die and be resurrected from the dead. If it wasn't for this faithful minister's wife, the young girl, I think, very likely would have abandoned her faith altogether. Because of this faithful discipleship, the young girl was able to endure not only the kind of persecution she experienced when she went home to lay down at night, but she grew in her faith. She grew into maturity. But, as so often happens, none of us are able to make it to the finish line of life without a few scratches on us. The faithful minister became old. He had difficulty walking up and down the steps to the platform to preach. And he retired. He moved away to be closer to home, and both him, his wife, and the young girl that they had been discipling were afraid of what the future would look like. The following summer, the young girl was encouraged to participate in short-term mission trips. She made a trip to Thailand, she made a trip to Indonesia, and she made friends, people that she hadn't seen in her small local church. She made friends with people that showed her that discipleship isn't just about meeting with a person who can help us through the elementary stages of our faith, but it's being called into a community of believers that continue to challenge us. People that are walking alongside us in the circumstances of life and contending from Scripture the way that we should engage with them. This young girl graduated. All of her friends that were in the church well, they had different backgrounds, so they began to move away. When they graduated, they went to college, but not her. She stayed in that church. And she felt isolated and alone, not like she had felt when she went on these mission trips. She approached her new pastor, and she asked for resources. She said, I see that there is a gap that needs to be filled here. What she was really saying was, my spirit has been provoked. I'm mature enough to do this on my own now. And I, I see that I am not just called to be a disciple, but I am called to be a disciple maker. And I've started meeting with some of my friends that I work with and some of the people that I see throughout my day to day. She had a Bible study group that within a month, was running 12 different people, single people, 12 different households. But she didn't have the resources. She went to her pastor asking for them, and she was dismissed. She came to her church, and she said, I want help with this Bible study group that is beginning to take shape. Looking back and thinking through this story with a reasonable amount of caution, because I know this girl, 
And as a matter of fact, you know her too. I don't think she was as clear as she needed to be when she was asking for help. But through whatever happened, she left with a feeling of discouragement. Her childlike spirit was discouraged, and she didn't see a future. She didn't feel like she had the help of her church family. And this girl moved away from the church where she was saved. Her name is Jessica Shackelford. I told you you know her. We don't want to draw close to the things that make us uncomfortable or even give an ear to the person that is so young that we're skeptical of their new methods. The reality is God doesn't work in the way things have always been. When we look at the Bible, the way things always were was man condemned. Ever since Adam had sinned and he had children, they were born with a sinful nature. God doesn't work in the way things had always been. I'm not saying that He changes, of course, but He changed the rules of the game. He delivered a Savior that was able to deliver humanity from their sinfulness by placing their faith in Him and Him alone, by submitting to His Lordship and obeying His commands, by following Him in all that they do. God doesn't work in the way that things have always been. He works in the provoking of a spirit. He, this is the same model that we find all over the Bible. And, and I promise I'm not making this up. If you turn to the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king when he got news that Jerusalem was still standing in decay and ruin. And he began to mourn and he cried and he prayed to God, make it possible that this could be corrected. And God intervened and made a way that in, that in something that seemed impossible to provide not only the lumber, not only the men, but to make it possible for him to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. God starts with the provocation of the heart. If somebody's obeying God, the Bible promises us when you delight yourself in the Lord, He gives you the desires of your heart. As long as we are faithfully delighting in Him, these desires are not abstract things, but they are coming from Him. And when these burdens are given to us, you begin to preach these things even before the plan seems to make sense, even before Silas and Timothy come to Paul at Athens. He begins to preach. And the people, when they hear Him preach, they cannot help but to begin to ponder the things that He is saying. They cannot help but begin to consider these things that he is saying because God is working in them. We look at two different reactions. Verse 18 mentions the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. It's nerdy time, so get your notebooks out. Most of the time when we talk about Epicureans, we talk about Epicurean food, people that like fine dining. But the Epicureans were philosophers that put their focus on life on pleasure. You know what the purpose of life is? Have a good time. Whatever that means. Indulge in everything that you have. Make the most of your life. The Stoics were very different. The Stoics actually look like most legalistic Christians today. The Stoics believed that the key to life was self-discipline. 
See, pleasure was neither good nor evil. Neither was suffering. It wasn't good nor evil. The Stoics believed that as long as they were self-disciplined and resound in themselves, that was the purpose of life. In fact, it was better to have killed oneself than to have been given over to impulsive desires, according to the Stoics. If we could summarize that. The Epicurean said, enjoy life. The Stoics said, endure life. Paul preached one message. And that was how to enter into life. How to enter into life through faith in Jesus Christ. He preached this same message to them and and he got different responses. The Epicureans looked at him and said, what is this babbler? I love this word in the Greek because it literally alludes to a bird picking up seed. A babbler. Just bouncing around in different places, not really making much sense at all. It was really quite pejorative when you think about it to call Paul, the greatest missionary in the New Testament, to call him a babbler. The Stoics reasoned and sat back and said, well, I'm not sure. I think he believes like us. He's a pantheist, you know. He just believes in all of these foreign divinities and everything that's coming around them. And Perhaps we should give him a hearing. We should listen to him. And they asked Paul if he would tell them this new thing. Paul's mission was simply to preach the gospel. Loved ones, the church is not in need of a new program. The church is in the need of an old gospel. The same gospel that Paul preached. The same gospel that Christ preached before him. The same gospel that established the churches in the first century. The same gospel that transformed Europe as Paul marched throughout it that caused Paul to write the letters and epistles that we find in the second half of our New Testament Bibles. Paul worked to preach an old gospel even though he didn't need these new programs. I wonder... Many people today get caught up, and there's this phenomenon called, um, what is it, analysis paralysis. Have you heard that yet? Analysis paralysis. We get so caught up in analyzing how things are going and coming up with the right plan that we can't really make movement. We can't really approach this. The title of our message this morning is Waiting for a Response. Waiting for a response from God's people to hear His word proclaimed and to be so committed to it that they abandon the philosophies and the privileges and the traditions and the things that they prefer so that they could simply draw near to Christ. The Stoics weren't able to do it. The Epicureans weren't able to do it. Are we able to do it? Oh, we've been in church a long time. I'm speaking to a group of Christians. I don't think that there are many here that don't know Christ. Don't think that I'm preaching to you because I think you're lost. I do think that there are some that are lost, of course, because, well, we know that no matter what church we come to, there will be a mixed group of people there. Are we willing to make Christ the Lord of our life? And let me ask you this, if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've struggled with submitting to the Lordship of Christ, submitting to the leadership of the church, submitting to these different things, even in abandoning the way we would like to do things and our preferences, how do you possibly expect the gospel that you preach to be heard by someone that hasn't been a Christian a long time? These things just don't make sense. If Christians aren't able to do it, how will the lost do it? 
If there is no example to them, how will they come to him? Eric Hoffer, an American philosopher, said that the fear of becoming a has-been keeps some people from becoming anything. I think sometimes the church is on the defense. We're afraid of losing everything that we've worked for. We're afraid of the shape of the church changing. We're afraid of the face of the church changing. If we preach the same gospel, we can be sure that this will never be the case. The gospel makes Christ the face of the church. The gospel puts everything in order through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The church that follows him resembles him more than the church that is committed to the way things have always been. I see the attitude and the fear of becoming a has-been in our culture today. As the nuns, for those of you not familiar with that word, the nuns refers to a group of people that do not, rep, do, do not identify with any sort of religious program, uh, any sort of religious identity. They simply have nothing. This year, statistics came out showing that the nuns are now the largest demographic in America. They've surpassed both evangelicalism and Catholicism. What's interesting is these types of people that I know personally or that I've had time to speak with, they really are spiritual people. They, they bounce around to every new idea. What's so tragic about it? The book of Ecclesiastes tell us, tells us that there is nothing new under the sun. The problem for them is they jump from Eastern mysticism and uh, Native American animatism and, and all of these different types of approaching their world types of ways of approaching their world is that their memory isn't good enough to remember when these things were the predominant perspective. Why don't we just come back to doing things the old way? Why don't we come back to being a people so committed to one another that we spend time in each other's homes, that the Bible is on our lips when we speak with each other, that we encourage each other with wisdom and we recognize that we are not the sole opinion that matters. Rather, it is Jesus's, which is not absent from us, but present for us in his word. We don't need something new. We need the same gospel that has been proclaimed and brought restoration to the lost from the beginning of time. Loved ones, as application this morning, I would pray that we would just think through what does it mean to wait on the Lord as He provokes us? If you've been provoked, would you have the courage to speak out? If you see a need that the church can reach, would you be willing to lead that charge? J.I. Packer wrote, Knowing God, wait on the Lord is a constant refrain in the Psalms, and it is a necessary word for God often keeps us waiting. He is not in such a hurry as we are, 
and it is not His way to give more light on the future than we need for action in the present, or to guide us more than one step at a time. When in doubt, do nothing but continue to wait on the Lord. When action is needed, light will come. Are you committed to being a real disciple maker? Are you willing to get into the messiness of other people's lives? Are you willing to be a disciple maker that is committed to allowing God to work through them? When I look at our church, I see a group of people that have drawn so close to God over the years that have been able to cling to Him in different trials and circumstances that have come upon them. But I only see this as individuals. I'm speaking frankly now, right? I only see this in individual lives, in a lot of people's individual lives, but I don't know that I see it as a community. I don't know that I see it as one church. Are you ready to change that? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your work that you have established for the planting of churches throughout history and the work that we get to continue to be a part of today. Father, I ask that as we come to you this morning and we consider this this first installment of Paul's arrival in Athens that we would seek to be a people who are prompted by you, a people who are faithful to preach for you, people who are willing to ponder truths that challenge us. Help us to grow, Lord, closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with